Well, good morning to you. Even though we live in uncertain times, we can be certain of this one thing. God's love for us and that Jesus is coming back soon. Is that right? And even though there's a lot of division, we can be united with Christ. And that's the key. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we just want to thank you for inviting the human family to be your family. Thank you for giving us your son, that he's not just our Lord and Savior, but our brother. What a supreme sacrifice. And we're thankful that this little one rebellious world will become the capital of the universe, though we're so undeserving. So, Father, help us to receive the love of Jesus, the humility of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, and the kindness of Jesus, that we may fitly represent you to the world. We just want to thank you, Father, for bringing us together as a church family in this yet time of peace to talk about the work that's before us and how you'll guide each one of us. And this we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today, as you see from the title, we're going to be focusing on um, Bible prophecy. And if we talked about two superpowers back in 1980, you would say the Soviet Union and the United States. But the Bible makes it very clear in Revelation 13, there are two superpowers, and yet we'll talk about a third today. And in Revelation chapter 13, there's the first beast, the first superpower, which we've always known and all the reformers knew, was the papacy. And the papacy, the Vatican, is a superpower in our world, right? I mean, it's over, it's 1.2 billion uh, of the world population, perhaps the wealthiest institution in the world, and certainly has political power throughout the world. And the Bible even tells us, and all the world wondered after the beast, well, You'd have to be a superpower if the whole world's wondering after you. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Well, you've got to be a superpower if that's going to happen, right? But this is a description of what it's going to be like just before Jesus comes back, right? Just before Jesus comes back, the papacy will, the whole world will wonder after the Vatican and worship. There'll be a form of worship. But this is just before the second coming. But in 1798, she received a... So Jesus wasn't coming back in 1798 because the papacy just lost all her political power. And therefore, we should look that we would know that we're getting to the end of time when we would see her regain that political power. Is that right? Is that true today? So in 1929, she officially became a political power again when she regained that 108.7 acres of Vatican City. But that just makes her a political power just legally, so to speak, right? But it doesn't make her a superpower by owning that acreage. But she is today a superpower. Now, and I'm doing this sermon to give us a sense of how close are we to the second coming. We know Jesus is coming back, but how close is it? Are we even at the door? Okay. The Bible will tell us. Now, the second superpower is also described in Revelation 13, verses 11 through 18. And notice what it's able to do and causes the earth to worship the first beast. Well, if you're able to cause the whole world to worship the first beast, you must be a what? You've got to be a superpower, right? And he had power to give life to the image of the beast that and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should, should be killed. Well, that's superpower. And he causeth all to receive the mark of the beast. So there's two superpowers. Is the United States a superpower today? Now remember I opened up saying in 1980 the two superpowers were the Soviet Union and the United States. But you remember what happened in 1989 is communism fell in the former Soviet Union. I tell you, it's what? It's Russia. Now Russia is a major power, but she's not one of the superpowers anymore. She was when she was the Soviet Union. China's a power, but not one of the three superpowers, and we'll get into that. 
But the Bible talks about two just before the second coming of Christ. But let's just take a little bit of history. Now, the Bible said America, at some point in time, would cause the whole world to worship the beast. Is this true? But in 1620, when the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock, was America ready to cause the whole world to worship the first beast? No, I don't think the Mayflower was a battleship. And even if it was, it couldn't cause Great Britain and Russia and nations around the world to worship the first beast. Would you agree? And then in 1776, we're just 13 colonies. How do 13 colonies that are just breaking away from Great Britain cause the whole world to worship the first beast, right? But the Bible said, there would come a time when America would be so powerful that it could cause the whole world to worship the first beast. And then in 1812, the battle of 1812, the British burned down the White House. But the Bible said, America would become powerful enough to cause the whole world to worship the first beast. And then in 1861 through 64, we had a civil war. 620,000 Americans die. Well, how do you cause the whole world to worship the first beast if you're killing over 500 million of your own people? But the Bible said, is that right? It's coming. And everything the Bible says is, is true. Did you know when we entered into World War I, we only had the 14th or 15th largest army in the world? Our standing army was actually a little smaller than Turkey. But the Bible said, we had a standing army of 20,000 soldiers entering into World War I. Now, how do you cause the whole world to worship the first beast if you only got 20,000 soldiers? Right? And then there was World War II. And in World War II, ending in 1945, the United States would emerge as a, as a superpower. Is that right? Now, the Bible said there'd come a time it could cause the whole world, and now it seemed like that was a possibility. Would you agree? We are now an officially a superpower in 1945. And do you know in 1950, just five years later, the United States produced 80% of all the goods made in the world. And that's because all the factories in Germany got destroyed and Japan got destroyed and France and Great Britain because of the war. Then in 1850, imagine the possibility of America causing the whole world to worship the first beast when you make 80% of everything made in the world. And we were the greatest developer and sender of oil around the world. Number one. Seems a lot more likely, doesn't it? That's 1950. But then the Korean War. Korean War, 1950 to 53, it ends in a draw. But the Bible said, even though we couldn't win the Korean War, we would still cause the whole world to worship the first beast. And we lose 53,000 American lives. Vietnam. 1964 to 75, 70,000 deaths. We end with a loss. But the Bible said, there come a time, even though we lost Vietnam, we could still cause the whole world to worship the first beast. And then Desert Storm, 1990-91. Six-week war. We didn't lose 70,000. We didn't lose 53,000. We lost 168 168 battlefield deaths. We won that war against Iraq, one of the strongest military forces in the world, in just six weeks. You see, in Korea and Vietnam, communism was on the other side. There was still the Soviet Union. And there was a draw or a loss for us. But guess in Desert Storm, guess who's not on the other side anymore? No more Soviets. Because communism fell in the Soviet Union in 1989. Desert Storm's 1990-91. In that year, we became the sole superpower of the world militarily and economically. America was in a perfect position to cause the whole world to worship the first beast. But some other things had to happen in America. 
And today we spend more money than the next 10 nations combined on military expenditures. We're 15% of the world's gross national product. China's number two at 9.3%. We're still in a position. We're still in a position, but that, that window's getting smaller because China's getting stronger. See what I'm saying? There's a window here. We are now capable of causing the whole world to worship the first beast, but the window's getting smaller, which means that Jesus must be coming soon. Does this make sense? But the Bible didn't just say the Vatican and the United States would become the two superpowers. It told us that they would work together. Now I want to take you back to October 31st, 1517. Martin Luther nails those 95 theses to the, the door at Wittenberg, right? Complaining against all the problems within the Catholic Church. He was a Catholic monk, but you had an impetus to the Protestant Reformation. And yet the Bible said Catholics and Protestants would what? Well, there's no way that was going to come true in 1517. And it wasn't going to come true in the 1500s or the 1600s or the 1700s or the 1800s. Because Catholics and Protestants didn't even like each other. Catholic children and Protestant children probably didn't play together in the 1800s in America. In 1620, the pilgrims come to Plymouth Rock. What would they have done to the Pope if he came right after that? They firmly believed that the papacy was the Antichrist of Bible prophecy. They preached against... Um, alcohol. They believed in the inerrancy of the Bible. But one of the biggest tenets of the pilgrims was the papacy is the Antichrist of Bible prophecy. And yet the Bible said not just that Catholics would work together, but Protestants in America would work with the Catholic Church. 1620. There's no way that was going to happen. 1642, Virginia prohibited Catholics from even settling in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Isn't that interesting? But the Bible said. The Bible said. 1719, Rhode Island. I mean, the colony of what? Religious liberty, right? Denied suffrage, the ability to vote to Catholics. And yet the Bible said they'd work together. 1788, John Jay. John Jay was a founder. He was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, he was the first Supreme Court Justice to the United States, said, and he urged the New York legislature to require office holders to renounce the Pope and foreign authorities. But the Bible said. 1830s, 1840s, as Catholic immigrants came from Ireland and Germany by the droves, that raised anti-Catholicism in America to the point that they burned down a covent, convent in Massachusetts and they burned down a lot more than that. There was a lot of hatred between Protestants and Catholics. But the Bible said, the Bible said. 1951, President Truman appoints an ambassador to the Vatican. He has to withdraw because of the protests of Protestants in America. Clark, General Clark, was appointed as ambassador. He had to withdraw because there was such a protest by Protestants in 1951. That's not that long ago, but the Bible said. In 1960, we had our first Catholic president. And now it seems a little more likely that what? Catholics and Protestants in America, what? Are going to start coming together. But prior to that... You had a whole lot of history that says that's not going to happen. But the Bible is always right. 1984, President Reagan appoints an ambassador, Melody, to, to the Vatican. How does America respond? respond? Every politician wants to get his picture taken with the Pope. And I'm serious. In just 30 years, in 30 years you go from protest to getting your picture taken. And that's exactly what the Bible said would happen just before 
the second coming of Christ. Friends, we are in last in the last days. In 1965, first time a pope came to America, probably could never have come to America prior to this. Not until we had John F. Kennedy. Pope Paul VI visits the United Nations, not the White House, not Congress. Wouldn't have been invited there in 1965. America would not have welcomed a pope to the White House in 1965. He has to go to the United Nations. 1979, Pope John Paul II. Look how many times John Paul came. I mean, the door's open. John Paul II and Ronald Reagan were, I'm not saying they were best friends, but they sure worked closely together. Just like the Bible said. Pope Benedict came in 2008, Pope Francis 2015, and this was significant because he didn't just visit the United Nations, he visited the United States Congress. Okay? And this is what we were told. You find this in Last Day Events, which is just a quote from Great Controversy. When the Protestants, meaning Protestant-leading churches in the United States, uniting upon such points of doctrine as held by them in common, shall influence the state to enforce their decrees and to sustain their institutions, then Protestant America will have formed an image of the Roman hierarchy, and the infliction of civil penalties upon dissenters will inevitably result. And I've been reading some of these quotes in my last couple of sermons here about the Protestants reaching across the gulf to the Roman power, the Protestants reaching across the gulf to spiritualism, so the Protestants reaching across the gulf, clasping hands with the state. Protestants, Protestants, Protestants. And that brings up the other point. It's not just Catholics and Protestants working together, which no one would have ever conceived of in the 1500s. It's just that the Bible tells us that these fallen churches don't just cross hands with the Roman power. They will pressure our lawmakers to pass a Sunday law, that they will become so highly charged politically that that's going to ruin our Constitution and our nation. Now, here we have it. Just look at these two words. And I saw another beast, the United States, coming up out of the earth. It's a new world. Two horns like a lamb, republicanism, protestantism, which we heard in our last sermon. And he spake as a dragon. You say, well, what does it mean to speak? Look at the verse down here in verse 15. And he, the second beast, had power to give life unto the image of the beast, uniting church and state, that the image of the beast should both what? Speak. And cause that as many as would not worship the image of beast should be killed. Well, you just don't go out and kill people randomly. There's a law. There's a law that says if you break the law, there's a death decree associated. This is legislation. Notice that this Protestantism, this apostate Protestantism, is all involved in speaking legislatively. We're not just talking about a Protestantism that's clasping hands with the Catholic power. We're talking about Protestants in America that are involved in legislation, that are involved in politics. And that's exactly all what this book's all about. I encourage you to reread Great Controversy, friends. Because what's in this book is going to happen. This is the narrative. These are the players. These are the issues. And all this is doing is expanding on this. That's all it's doing. I can count the number of verses here, but this does it in chapters. We need to know this. Now, so what we're looking for just before the second coming of Christ is not just the Vatican and the United States being superpowers, not just the Catholics and Protestants work together. We're looking for Protestants in America that become so politically charged, you would basically know them by their politics. That is really their identification. That, my friends, is the dominionist and the far number of evangelicals in this country. So, just before the second coming, two superpowers, Vatican and the United States. Is this true? It's true today. Catholics and Protestants working together? Absolutely. Apostate Protestant power in America pushing politics in the United States? Absolutely. We're here, friends. We're here. Now, The three angels' message even emphasizes our message. We're to preach, first and foremost, what? The everlasting gospel. Because you can tell people what's going to happen at the end of time, but if they don't know Jesus, they're lost anyway. Okay? 
The everlasting gospel to fear God, give glory to Him. And the way you give glory to God is to what? Choose to be like Him. The greatest way that you can give glory to God is say, I want to be just like you, Jesus. Right? And that's why John was a beloved John. Not because he was closer to Jesus simply in proximity, always at his feet. It's because he, more than anybody else, wanted to be just like Jesus. And he became the beloved John. And that's what you want to become. The beloved Gregory, right? And the beloved Stanley. Is this true? And that can only happen if we become more like More like Christ. That's the key, friends. That's the key. And that's the first angel's message. And that judgment has come. Tell the world the judgment's already started. Worship him that created heaven and earth. But you know what the second angel's message is? We have to tell the world that these Protestant churches have fallen. That Babylon has fallen, has fallen. Is not talking about the Roman church. The Roman church had been a fallen church for over a thousand years. We're preaching this message in 1840, telling the world that Babylon is the fallen churches of Protestantism. And why are we telling the world of the fallen churches of Protestantism? Is it just because of their erroneous doctrines that they refuse to accept the truths of the Sabbath and the state of the dead and Bible prophecy and the law of God? I mean, go through the whole list and they've rejected every one of them. And they became fallen. But you know what Sister White says and the Bible says about how they're fallen? It will become worse. In 1840, they had not caused the whole world to wonder after the beast. That is yet to be fulfilled. They only began the process in 1840. In the end, it will be this group that will completely fall. These fallen churches of Protestantism are not fallen simply theologically. And when you read Great Controversy, their ultimate fall is when they get the whole world and they form this fornication with the the nations and causing them to pass a Sunday law. That's when they truly get the whole world to drink, right? Let's look at that. Revelation 18, verse 2. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great has fallen, has fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have what? Drunk of the wine of the wrath of the fornication of the kings of the earth. Well, in 1840, that wasn't fully true. But it's going to be true in the end of time. So what you're looking for in the end of time is a sign of the soon return of Christ is not simply apostate Protestants clasping hands with the Roman power. You're not simply finding them involved in political process. You're going to find them involved in causing the whole world to drink from that cup. And friends, that's taking right in place right in front of us. And it's just about ready to happen. It's just about ready to happen. And that is the second angel's message that we're to preach. But how do you preach that church if you get involved in ecumenicalism? Is this true? If you start getting involved in ecumenicalism, you're not going to want to preach the second angel's message. But people have to be warned of the second angel's message because this is where the persecution is going to come from. From the second beast causing the whole world. I'm telling you, friends, this is going to happen. It's because it's going to happen because the Bible said. And this confirmed it. And when she wrote this book in 1958, when she she received the vision in 1858, who tried to kill her? Why did Satan try to kill Ellen White when she wrote this book? Because it completely unmasks everything the devil's going to do in the end of time. And he doesn't want the world to know what's in this book. And so when we preach our message, and this book is simply expanding on this and and agreeing with this. Don't change the narrative. This is exactly what's going to happen. Nothing else is going to happen. Oh, sure, there's all kinds of things that happen in our world that are bad. But this is the worst thing that's going to happen. And what's in this book is telling us how it's going to affect most people's eternal destiny. And this is what God asked us to preach. Other people are preaching other things. That's fine. 
You can preach your other things. But this is who we are. This is who we are. And the third angel, if any man worship the beast, or his image, or his mark, telling us that, you know, there's a consequence for this. And you're not saved in groups. You're saved individually. You're going to have to cast your vote. You're going to have to make your own decisions on your own. And this is why we've got to study. We've got to read for ourselves. Now, now, if that wasn't encouraging enough, let's get into the third superpower, all right? Revelation 17. Turn to Revelation 17, verse 1. But I want you to know that when you get out of Revelation 13, and it says the second beast is going to cause the whole world to worship the first beast, it kind of tells you how they're going to do it. They're going to use deception, right? I mean, fire comes down out of heaven, deceiveth the world with these false miracles, and they're going to cause people legislatively to do it. But you still might have this lingering question, but how does it happen structurally? How's it really going to happen? I mean, how's it really going to be carried out? And generally, when prophecies are being repeated and enlarged upon, it's not changing the narrative. It's only giving you a little bit more information about the foundation that you've already been told. The foundation is two superpowers. The one, the whole world wonders after, and the second causes everybody to do it. And 17 is only going to help explain a little more how that's going to happen. Does that seem fair enough? So in Revelation chapter 17, and we'll get into the third superpower here, but look at verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Now we know a woman in Bible prophecy represents what? It represents a church. Let me read you the, the true church. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. So that's a true church. And you say, well, that's a true. It sounds like it's in heaven. It wouldn't be here. But notice that it's a wonder in heaven, and it's God's true church on earth. And you say, well, that doesn't seem to make sense. Well, it makes perfect sense because those who are part of God's true church are born again. They're born from above. The church's true origin is what? Heaven itself. Because the kingdom of heaven lives in the members of that church. And so it's a, it's a woman as seen in heaven because the origin is Jesus started the church. And where's he from? He's from heaven. He came from above. And so we have God's true church clothed with the sun, clothed with his righteousness, the moon under her feet representing the word, that they're standing on the foundation of God's word and nothing else. Is that true? I mean, this is Protestantism, friends, right? And... Twelve stars. And uh, they have a crown. They have a crown here, and it says, head, a crown of twelve stars. And the crown isn't a royal crown, but a victor's crown. You see, because God's people who are clothed with the righteousness of Christ and stand on the word are gaining what? They're gaining victories. Because you know, friend, that's the only way you can gain a victory. You cannot gain victories if you're not clothed with Christ's righteousness because none of us have our own righteousness. The only righteousness you could possibly have would be Christ. It's the only way you could ever have a victory. And if you're not standing on the word and you're standing on tradition, you can't have victory. You can only have victory if it's Christ's righteousness that's in you based on the word. And that's why they are successful and victorious. Okay? But this other woman has a different description. Verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. That means church and state coming together. Well, the church of Jesus Christ in the first century wasn't combined with the Roman power, was it? In fact, it would corrupt the Roman power. I mean, it would corrupt the church, wouldn't it? You see, Jesus doesn't need Uncle Sam. No matter what form of government Uncle Sam has. It's somewhat immaterial. I mean, I've been to China three times doing mission work and... I met people who've been in prison for 20 years out of their 50-year life. But you'll never find a more dedicated group of people. And they can be Christians under communism, as people always have. It, It just doesn't matter. You fight for your freedoms, but your first relationship is, and you become a citizen of heaven when you're born again, right? Because you're a citizen of the United States. If you're born in the United States... 
But you're a citizen of heaven if you're born again. And you're first and foremost a citizen of heaven before you're a citizen of the U.S. If the United States passes laws that interfere with the laws of heaven, then you... I mean, you got dual citizenship here. You're going to have to make a decision. It will have to be based on God's laws of his kingdom. Does this make sense? But this woman's different. And I wish it wasn't this way. I wish the Church of Rome, and, the, and we'll get into the Protestant churches, I wish they had never skewed away from the Bible. Because this is what tradition over the Bible does to any church. It doesn't matter. It's just a principle. And if a church gets involved so much into politics where that becomes its power, she ruins herself. What we need is the power of the Spirit. Now, I want us to notice in trying to identify this, because we need to identify this church to understand who the third superpower is. But I want you to know that in verse 1, it's called the great whore. I just put Harley, it just sounds a little nicer. But anyway, it's an apostate church, right? But notice in verse 18 what it also is. And the woman shall sauce is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. So the woman, this apostate church, is not just a church, it's also, it's a great city, okay? There's three things she sits on in this chapter. In verse 1, it says she sits on many waters. What do waters represent? Peoples. We don't have to guess. It's in verse 15. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest where the horse sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So we're not talking about an apostate church in a great city that has like 20 members. We're talking about an apostate church that also represents a great city that is the wonder of the nations itself. This is a worldwide church. What else does she sit on? She sits on a beast. Verse 3, let's read it. So he carried me away in the spirit in the wilderness. I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads, ten horns. If What's a beast represent in Bible prophecy? A kingdom or a political power. So the woman not only sits upon the popularity of the world, she also sits upon political power. Now right there, you just whittled it down probably to one church. I don't know of any other church in the world that possesses political power that's also a nation as as well as a church. I mean, the Adventist church isn't a nation. We're just a church. Same with the Baptists. Same with the Episcopalians, right? We're just a church. But this is one that's also a nation. That would be the Vatican. But let's look at verse 9. And here's the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mounds on which the woman what? Now, in the ancient times, if I told you I was going to city on seven hills, where am I going? I'm going to Rome. Now, Seattle sits on seven hills, but Seattle didn't exist here. Okay? And there's a few other cities. But the great city that sits on seven hills is, is Rome. So God gives us these descriptions because what, if you just have a few, it might fit a few players. But God says, I want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt who we're talking about. Now, the reason for bringing this up is to get to that third superpower. Notice what he says in um, verse 10 about these seven heads. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen. So when John sees a vision... How many have fallen? Five. That's past tense. And one is. That's present tense. When John sees a vision, one, the sixth power, is. And the other, the seventh head, the seventh political power, is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. So when you put Daniel and Revelation together, we know exactly when John sees the vision. And this is important because we'd never know who the seventh head is if we didn't know when he was seeing the vision. I mean this third power. Five are fallen. Babylon, there's the years. Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Papacy ends in what? So when's John seeing the vision? Not in the first century. He's living in the first century. He's on the island of Patmos, but he's taken forward in time to when five have fallen. So he's seen, and there'll be more evidence of this in the chapter. Five have fallen, 1798. One is. So in Bible prophecy, when the papacy is seen as going into captivity, 
Revelation 13.10, what is coming up out of the earth? It's the next beast. It's the United States. So listen to me here. (laughs) John sees a vision. Five have already fallen. One is the United States. Is it a true statement that the United States existed in 1798? Absolutely. We had our revolution. We have George Washington and now James John John Adams as a president. But the seventh head has not yet come. Meaning it didn't exist. Right? Now I put United Nations, I haven't proven that yet, but I'm gonna hopefully do that here in a little bit. But what you're looking for, and I could be wrong, you need to be looking at this. But I'm looking for a power that would be the equivalent of a Babylon, Medo Persia, Greece. I'm not looking for some small little power. I'm looking at something that's one of the seven heads. And all these other heads are world powers. So you're looking for something that has the ability to influence the world. In fact, something so strong it could create its own new world order. Because that's what all these did. Babylon had its own new world order, so to speak. Tried to get everybody to worship the golden image. Look at Alexander. His empire was even greater than that. These are world powers, friends. And that's what we need to keep in mind. But as far as I can see this prophecy, it says here, and there are seven kings, five are fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come. Didn't exist. So you can't say the seventh head is Great Britain. You can't say it's France. You can't say it's Russia. Because they already what? They already existed. Let's read on. And let's confirm that John saw it in 1798. Notice what it says in verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads seven and ten horns. So John's carried away in the spirit. That's a key point. Into the wilderness. Well, where is John physically right now? Isle of Patmos, is that like a wilderness? I mean, that's a desolate island. I mean, there's hardly any trees there. It was a work camp just off the coast. It is barren. It's a wilderness. And so John's not saying he took me from the Isle of Patmos to another desolate place. No, I'm receiving the vision on the Isle of Patmos, and I'm carried by the Spirit into the wilderness. And you say, oh... When is the wilderness mentioned in Revelation? Well, go to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, verse 6. And the woman, the true church, fled into the what? Where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand, two hundred, three score days. Do we know what that prophecy means? 538, 1798, right? That's the period of time that the true church was being persecuted where? In the wilderness. And you'll see the same thing said in verse 14. It's the wilderness time. It's the wilderness time. John was taken forward into the wilderness time, not another desolate place. He's being taken forward in time, but when in the wilderness? 538, 1798? Let's look. Notice what it says in verse 6. I saw the woman, the church, drunken with, past tense, drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So did John see this vision in 538? No. Church isn't guilty of the blood of the saints yet. But it would be. Over 50 million of them. By what year? 1798. Right? 1798, I'm telling you, friends. And not only did he, in this vision, when he was in vision in the time of the wilderness, was able to look back and see that the church was already drunken with the blood of the saints... He's looking back and notice that five of these have already fallen. And the fifth one's the papacy. He's standing in 1798. Okay? Now, what else did he not see in 1798? Look at verses 12 and 13. This is what Robbie read to us. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings. And I put United Nations. Could be wrong. You need to check it out. Which have received what? No kingdom when? Not as of yet of 
1798. You see, the seventh head, the seventh power, didn't exist in 1798, and the ten kings don't exist yet in 1798. You see what I'm saying? It has the same description. But I want you to notice something here. It says, which have received no what? Kingdom singular. These are not ten kings with ten kingdoms. And this is why there's no crowns on these horns. Because these ten kings share a kingdom together. Does that make sense? They don't have a kingdom as yet. You're looking for something that represents ten that doesn't have a kingdom together. One kingdom representing ultimately what's the seventh head. So let me ask this question. And notice what else it does. But receive power as kings one hour with the beast. And an hour is not prophetic time like, what would that be? An hour would be like 15 days, is that right? An hour? Anyway, uh, it just means like the Greek words horus. Like you and I are here at the church at the same hour. Or yesterday we were at Walmart at the same hour. It didn't mean we were shopping for 15 days. We were just there at the same time. So, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast, the Vatican. These have one mind and shall give their power strength unto the beast. So, what you're looking for in the end of time, just before the second coming, is a power, this seventh head that didn't exist in 1798, and ten kings that don't have a kingdom yet as of 1798. But when they have power, they give it to the papacy. They share that power with the papacy for a short time just before what? The second coming of Christ. Now, I'm going to submit to you that the seventh head and the ten horns are the same power. Neither one existed in 1798, right? They both represent political power. One's a head, one's a horn. Those, both those symbols represent political power. And when they have power, they both only have it for a short time. One says short time, one says for one hour. Okay? The United Nations has divided the world up into ten politically economic regions. So that if there's a problem regionally in the world, they can solve it regionally. But it does kind of answer the question, how does the second beast cause the whole world to worship the first beast, the papacy. How does America cause the whole world to worship the papacy? How do you do that? Well, in Revelation, we're told spiritualism, false miracles, and causing people. But where does the world meet? It meets in the United Nations. Because soon as America passes a national Sunday, what the rest of the world does? Follow suit. And where do you think they're going to talk about that? The United Nations. If you still want to get funding from the United Nations, you need to follow us. I mean, you heard it not long ago. If you don't vote with us on making Jerusalem the capital of Israel, you may not get any more funding. The, the language is already out there. That if you don't agree with us, we don't fund you anymore. So imagine when we get to this point in history. That if you don't take the national sun and pass one in your own country, you see, this is when the Bible says in Revelation 13, it could cause rich or poor not to be able to what? Buy or sell. Where is that going to logically be carried out, my friends? The United Nations. Because all the nations are going to get together, and eventually even China is going to realize they're going to have to give in to this. Now, what I do find interesting is that the papacy is so huge in the United Nations. When the Pope came to America, where did he always go? In the United Nations. Okay. Um, and right now, and while we know, according to the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, that a national Sunday laws could be passed in America by who? Apostate Protestants, pressuring our lawmakers. How does the Vatican introduce Sunday to the rest of the world? I mean, what Protestants do in this country is this country. 
But how does the whole world follow and also pass a national Sunday law that's outside the United States? Huh? A family day? Do we see that happening anywhere in America? Or not America, but the world? Labor? What countries do you see this happening in? Europe, Poland. Where else? And that's not because of Protestants in America that they're doing this. Who's influencing this? The Vatican, through... You see what I'm saying? Now, probably the biggest way, one of the biggest things, not not just family, not just labor, but people are going to want a Sunday off for labor, right? We want a day off. Uh, families need a day off. You see, inter- Sunday's being introduced. The seeds of Sunday are being introduced to the world, not just through family, not just through labor, but through climate change, right? A day off for the world. I mean, they know the earth started healing itself when a lot of factories shut down. They measured this. Birds started migrating to places they hadn't migrated for a long, long time because the air was cleaner. It made a difference. We are poisoning our world. We do it every day. But this is how, in part, they're going to plant the seeds of Sunday. Now, to me, Sunday's not going to happen because of climate change. Sunday's going to happen as it almost already happened in this country. Do you realize in 1888, they almost passed a Sunday law? And nobody's talking about climate change. They're wanting to pass it on religious issues, to break this a Christian nation. And I'm going to talk about this maybe in the next sermon on religious liberty, because we need to talk about it. But you know, when they were writing out our First Amendment, they didn't all agree. There were some that wanted the First Amendment to say that we just simply couldn't have a national church, but that we would still mess church and state together. And they made their proposals, and they all were defeated. That was a minority within this Congress, hammering out our Constitution. And then Samuel Livermore made a a proposal. He said, the Congress shall pass no subject on the, shall pass no law on the subject of religion. And it passed. Isn't that interesting? It's not the final wording, but it told you what? The intent. The intent of the First Amendment was that our Congress could pass no law touching the subject of religion, but it didn't say that's the final wording. They would just simply say it another way. That Congress can pass no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. It means the same thing. It's a lot more beautiful words. Fits our Constitution. Fits Protestantism, Republicanism. But there was a minority that wanted to mesh church and state in that Congress. They didn't all agree. But we can thank the majority in that Congress that gave us our freedoms. Freedom of religion. And in this country, it doesn't matter whether you're a Catholic or Protestant or Jew or Muslim or if you profess no religion at all. You have the free right to express your religious faith. And at the top of your own lungs, you could preach against somebody else's church if you want. You could do it in speech, you could do it in assemblies, you could do it in writing. That's people's freedom. But you can't take away somebody else's freedom. You can't pass a national Sunday law that tells people when to worship or how to worship. Because not everybody keeps that day. And this is why we had the separation of church and state. So, in conclusion, what's going to happen before Jesus comes back? There will be three superpowers. There will be the Vatican... There'll be the United States. And if I'm correct, on the seventh head, those ten kings, you'd see something that didn't exist in 1798, the United Nations. Now, any one of these three are more are powerful enough to create their own new world order. And the United Nations is... The globalists are behind the United Nations. They have an idea what they want for new world order, right? And part of that's to reduce the world's population. Vatican wants a new world order based on Catholicism. 
and America via apostate Protestants believe they're supposed to control the world. That's dominionists. Those are the three powers in our world. China's powerful, Russia's powerful, but they're not able to create a new world order anymore. They're not strong enough. This is already here. Jesus is coming soon, friends. The United States could cause the whole world to worship the first beast. Is that true? It's true. Bible said it. Wasn't true 200 years ago. Wasn't true 100 years ago. But it's true today. Protestant Catholics working together, is that happening? It wasn't true 100 years ago. But it's true today. Apostate Protestant churches gaining political prowess in America? Yes. Absolutely, friends. Right before our eyes. Vatican and the United, United Nations working together? Yes. I said, you know, friends, all the players are there. So what are we missing? Well, the second coming, but this before the second coming. What? On either side, on the one side, we're missing, all we're missing is a national Sunday law. The whole, the whole players are there. And on the other side, what are we missing? The latter rain. But you can't get the latter rain unless you have the early rain. And we'll talk about that probably in one of these next couple of sermons. Because if we don't have that, we're still here. And what is the early rain? It is a message. It's a message of Christ's righteousness. You see, if we have the early rain, which is a message of Christ's righteousness, how does the righteousness of this one man change my life? You see what I'm saying? It's one thing for Christ to put on human flesh and live a sinless life, but the question is, how does that affect me? And is it supposed to? Am I only to believe that he lived a righteous life? Or does his righteous life need to change me? You see, that's the message. And the message is, or the question is, how does the righteousness of this one man make me righteous so that I would be prepared to receive the latter rain? See, that's the key, friends. And we haven't received the latter rain yet because we haven't received... And this is the tragedy of what happened in our own church in 1888. The message of the early rain was the message of 1888, the message of righteous by faith, which our leaders, the majority, rejected. And there's no way to receive the latter rain if you reject the early rain. So, it doesn't matter what they didn't do. Because we're all individuals fully capable of accepting the message ourselves, And God doesn't care what rank you have in the human family. He doesn't care how much money you have. All he cares about is if you're going to surrender your whole heart to receive the early rain. To allow the righteousness of Christ to change your life. To affect it so that you see people different, treat them different. You live a different life. You live a whole new life. And in that changed life, you'll receive the latter rain. And when we see the latter rain, while they're passing a Sunday law, time is so short, friends. I mean, we're almost there. So what is God mostly waiting for? He's really waiting for us. And this is where we got to be so careful in watching news and reading the newspaper and looking at, oh, look how evil the world is. Doesn't matter how evil the world is. All that matters is whether Jesus lives in us and we're becoming more like Jesus because that's the only way we're going to get out of here. He's not waiting for the world to get worse. He's waiting for us to get more like him. And if God had enough people who felt that way and lived that way, none of us would have ever been born. But my prayer is we're the last generation. Not because I don't want more people born in this world. I would just like to see these young kids grow up in heaven. 
It's a tough world to grow up in. Look at these young kids. You imagine the privilege of being a parent and let your kid grow up in heaven? That's what we need. And so it's what we do every day and say, Father, let the early rain fall on me. May the righteousness of Christ fall upon me and help me to grow in Christ. And if we just focus on that every day, we're getting closer to second coming. The players are there. God's just waiting for us. Before we have our closing prayer, we have a closing hymn. I said it right that time, didn't I? Very good, Jeff. Very good. Hymn number 598. 598. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful hymn that asks us to watch. And as we see the scenes transpire before our eyes, we realize Jesus is coming soon. Father, we've longed for this moment. And from our pulpits around the world, may we herald the call that Jesus is almost here. Get ready, get ready, get ready. And so, Father, be with each family represented here. May the angels love to dwell in our homes each and every day. 
help our family members, each one of us, draw closer to Christ in these lingering days of verse history. And so, Father, now as we're dismissed, we just ask that you would send us home with uh, safe travels and love in our hearts and a zeal for your work. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.